Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 3rd, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Returning to the show today is UCI Professor Kermit Reiter with an ambitious roster, starting with attempts to reform solitary confinement in California, but it was put on hold for the later part of this legislative session. We'll talk about that. We'll hopefully we'll have time to hear about her projects in the carceral system. That's the Bachelor's of Arts degree program in the UC system and other education programs. And as even if we have more time, we're, we'd like maybe to talk about her basic insights that she would bring to about the bail reform debate that uh, this would be affecting jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers and how these policies affect individuals and communities. We'll be right back. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Karamit Reiter. She is professor with dual appointments at UCI's Department of Criminology, Law and Society and UCI's Law School. She's founding director of Lifted, a prison education program in the UC system. And she was a, a central contributor and a sort of central figure in the prison pandemic play produced, I think it's almost two years ago mm -hmm. now. So all these jobs, women build, nurture, manage. Mm -hmm. That's the, the through line with mm -hmm. all that she's doing. Karamet studies prisons, prisoners' rights, and the impact of prison and punishment on individuals, communities, and legal systems. Her research is based on interviews, archival and legal analysis, and the data analysis documenting the history and impact of criminal justice policy. She's worked as an associate at Human Rights Watch and has testified before state and federal legislators. Her last appearance on this show was the Prison Pandemic Project, a basis for the collaborational play performed on the campus. It was spring of 2022. Today, she can provide astute analysis about the recent debates on solitary confinement reform, a bill that was set aside, as I said early in the intro, intro, intro of the show. Uh, so. We will also hope that she's got other updates, as I said, in some of these other programs. She joins us live in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Karamet Writer. Thanks so much for having me, Claudia. It's so good to be back in person. It is so, it is so special. So, Karamet, your career is about investigating what's this institution of solitary confinement all about and how California stands out in the U.S., it was what we did on your first appearance here, mm -hmm. and a formerly incarcerated man, Michael Saavedra, appeared mm -hmm. later about his 12 consecutive years of 19 years he served, mm -hmm. 12 consecutive years in solitary, and he, he did appear later. It was in, uh, the, I think, February 2018. Mm -hmm. So first, though, Carmen, let's consider what was being discussed in 
Assembly Bill 280, the California Mandela Act, that would limit confinement in jails, but was it was set aside, it was put on hold because they knew it was going to be vetoed by Governor Newsom. Mm-hmm. So it would be affecting city jails and state prisons and potentially it would... that. They would have to, there was special language about it affecting county jails, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the bill would prohibit the facilities from involuntarily placing an individual in segregated confinement if the individual belongs to a designated population, important here, including, among others, that the individual has a mental or physical disability or that the individual is under 26 years of age or over 59 years mm-hmm. so I let's and I don't know if there's other demographics we should consider that if there's an overrepresentation of certain groups and how how this bill would affect how it would change the status quo yeah absolutely so you know solitary confinement reform over the last 10 years especially since you know we started talking about this has has really taken on a, a national scope and and the conversation has changed when when I started my work on on solitary confinement in California uh, people weren't really that aware of what was happening and at the time there were thousands of people in state prisons in solitary confinement for years at a time so locked in cells 23 or more hours a day getting out maybe a couple times a week to go into a concrete exercise yard, really limited access to natural light, no human contact, thousands of people in California. It turned out more than 500 had been in conditions like this for more than 10 years continuously as of about 2010, 2011. That is no longer true in our state prisons because of reform. There was a massive uh, hunger strike litigation, and Pelican Bay that I wrote an entire book about is now converted to a lower security facility. Those isolation units there, there are bright murals painted on the walls. The doors are opened up. Uh, And many of those folks that I wrote about um, eight, nine years ago are now actually students in the University of California system. So that's, I was going to get to that intersection (laughs) of that when you move away from the punitive approach, the rehabilitative approach has dividends that people aren't even thinking about. Yeah. They're not calculating. And so it's, it's the tweak wasn't that hard, yeah. was it, to sort of transition. But that as far as how Pelican, the Pelican facility looks so different. Mm-hmm. So those, those poured concrete isolated units, mm-hmm. cells, those are they... They're there, they're there but, but they they're not have, housed. But the doors are now open. So instead of having these solid steel doors that are closed all day, every day, they're opened up. People can move in and out of their cells. Um, people in that prison used to look out at a blank concrete wall. A lot of those walls now have literally colorful murals painted on them. Um, and people can move around much more. So they've taken that hardened facility and changed the way they use it to allow people more human contact. And so when you did your book, that the solitary meant then for those that were trying to get an education degree that and and you that I believe I can't remember is it the picture on the cover or it's inside the book where like when Michael wanted to to work on his college degree, mm-hmm. it was like a phone booth sized basket they're, that they had to do their studies in but that that's another change yeah those are so they're now yeah. they can move out and they can branch yeah. out and the the education process is also improved 
vastly. Yes, absolutely. So wow. there, yeah, I mean, there's this visual of these cages that came out in a Supreme Court opinion looking at overcrowding in California prisons where people in isolation, if they needed to go to the library, they needed to go to the doctor, they were in these phone booth sized cages that the California prison system insists on calling therapeutic treatment modules. I always have to share that euphemism. Uh, but exactly at Pelican Bay now, people would would have access. And in fact, a, another big change in the state, while while we're talking about upbeat reforms before we get to the depressing work, is is that there are many more higher education opportunities for people incarcerated in state prisons in California over the last decade. So um, every prison in the state now has access to community college programming. The vast majority of it face to face. So when I was first writing about Pelican Bay, if someone was lucky enough to be able to correspond with a family member who could pay for uh, a correspondence course, so like a literally a course where they were getting materials um, by mail, filling out worksheets or writing essays and then sending them back to someone. Um, if they were lucky enough to have someone who could pay for that, that might be their only access to education. And now we have people, even those people still in solitary, often have access to some kind of education in the state um, and certainly out of solitary. As I said, almost every state prison has face-to-face -face, uh, college programming community colleges everywhere and increasingly for your bachelor's degree programs. So this is work that can be done, mm -hmm. research that can follow how that, I guess you could call it an intervention, but that available kind of a program, mm -hmm. the, the dividends it is in rehabilitating somebody that this becomes somebody who's where recidivism is going to change mm -hmm. once they're out there's mm -hmm. I mean there's uh, all of the benefits for opening that up so is that something maybe some of your PhD candidates are working on or you're doing that yourself or you're seeing it because you you go in this and maybe you'll get a chance to say what it's like when you go in mm -hmm. and, and do your mm -hmm. teaching experiences yeah, absolutely. But but to the question about the impacts, it's absolutely something that people are studying. I do have a doctoral student who's who's working exactly on some of this work about trying to document the impacts of these programs. Well, let's have this person on. Yeah, we should. He's amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, he's he teaches uh, guitar in prison actually, uh, and he's very interested in the impact of arts programming on incarcerated students. So he would be a wonderful guest. He's been um, a, you know a key collaborator in trying to bring more education programs into the prison and he he was teaching guitar before many of these college programs even started so he has these long-standing relationships he's a professional professional musician but has a lot of personal experience with incarceration and is very invested in arts education in these communities and we know those notes move around on the floor mm -hmm. and so the whole the many-fold kind yes. of benefits yeah. there yeah okay so we're getting the idea Change is coming. Mm -hmm. Change is working. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll get more empirical stuff mm -hmm. when we get this PhD candidate mm -hmm. on here, and I I guess I I want to go take us to the legislative arena, mm -hmm. and for for listeners who must be as curious as I am about mm -hmm. how it works, that we we hear when researchers on in different media platforms talk about that they, they they dispel myths about what people think is going on in the carceral system. So when these legislative measures are under discussion, let's say Sacramento, so do people check in with you, Kermit Ryder, and find <laughs> out, so what's really the empirical evidence about these kinds of tweaks? Because they're, they're not major overhauls, they're tweaks. Mm -hmm. 
So do they do they get you not on a speed dial, but they <laughs> send you an email and hope to hear back from you fast? I think that they're. I, I think the the solitary confinement reform movement in the United States has has been really interesting for being a real collaboration between activists. So many people who've actually experienced these conditions of confinement and are coming from that lived experience to describe what's wrong with it. Academics like me who are trying to document systematically the harms of these kinds of conditions, the physical harms, the mental harms, uh, the institutional harms, and also lawyers who've litigated these conditions and are thinking about what's possible in terms of how to rewrite policy or how to work within the law to change it. And so in many ways, I think the movement around solitary confinement reform is a really exciting example of the ways these people with different kinds of expertise can work together that we don't see in a lot of other arenas often. So so I do think certainly in California, I do a lot of work in Washington state. I am often involved in conversations um, with people in corrections, with legislators and with activists and lawyers about how to think about viable reform, how to talk about the real documented extensive harms of extreme conditions of confinement and the kinds of places where we can intervene to try to improve those conditions in viable ways. So in the coverage of the Mandela Act, the AB 280, there's always the usual suspects that say we can't, it's too expensive, mm-hmm. it's too, uh, it's hard to manage mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So so are you able to get out there and uh, in front and talk one-on-one with the with legislators and say, well, this, this is actually what you need to say, I mean, maybe even give them talking points. Mm-hmm. Do you do that? Yes, a bit. I mean, I've done a number of legislative briefings for different groups on this topic. And there's also just a lot of conversations behind the scenes. Like there was a great, you know, early on, there was a conversation about some people alleging that trying to eliminate solitary confinement, the standards in the Mandela Act that you talked about would be really expensive. And there were questions about who could do a good evaluation of that. And I believe it was the legislative analyst office stepped in. And I think that can be really powerful when you have an internal state a neutral. Um, a neutral, yeah. exactly. And an internal agency that has access to really good information and can draw from different agencies and really help people think about how how to assess the costs. And that was really powerful to say, uh, actually, solitary confinement as we practice it is incredibly expensive. And if we actually took these steps to eliminate it, we might actually have cost savings, right? So there's, and, and just to understand that, and this is something I see across the country, there's often a response to solitary confinement reform that says it would be too expensive. It's a knee-jerk reaction. I think it's a way for correction systems to shut down a political challenge to this practice that they're relying on. And it's really important. I thought, you know, the whatever happened in California, I think we developed some really powerful talking points for the whole country. Oh, really? And okay. I, and I do think that that moment of an internal California independent agency saying, no, this would not be expensive. This might actually save us money is a really powerful moment that will be really useful across the country as other states consider this legislation, as California certainly considers it again in the future. So I think sometimes, it, it, you know, the losses in the moment can feel very depressing, but I often and talk about 
having been in this work for 20 years, how amazing it is to even see this conversation happening. And the Mandela Act got front page news on the LA Times a couple a couple different days and, and more. And lots of commenters. I've still, yes. I've got that in studio with us. Yeah, and, and more research um, was generated. And so I do think it's important to, to step back and remember that the conversation is really important. A lot of times harms and abuses are perpetuated in these places because no one is paying attention and they're really opaque. And I see, you know, one of the biggest wins of the movement is the kind of transparency that has been brought into these facilities by these conversations. So this is out in left field, but it's still (laughs) part of their detention conditions is that there was... I mean, there's phone service available. So when you're in solitary, they had no phones. That is correct. So now that that might change in the I don't know what it says in the bill, but and we also have with this, there is this sort of usurious. It's an extremely expensive service for inmates to use for detainees to use. See, inmates, not the word, right? I suppose detainee. I mean. I think person, you know, the idea of people first language, person who's incarcerated to remind us that these are human beings in prison. But I also say prisoner as an academic term that really, you know, captures the the place and the fact that they are confined. Um, but I think there's been a movement away from saying inmate, offender, felon, things that kind of imply that a person is entirely defined by something they've done uh, or the place that they're confined. Yeah. Which makes hard. So anyway, back to the phone service. So, so yeah. would this... Does the Mandela Act, a- mm. AB 280, because mm. it's still, it'll be up for debate, mm. mm-hmm. and of course, during an election year. So that's, that makes one wonder how much will happen, because this mm-hmm. is, this is a hot, hot potato. Yes. yes, it is. So does the person in a solitary condition, is, is the phone part of, would they have access to a phone? So that might open up a, a more of their their world. Yeah, I think I think the real motivation behind the Mandela Act is to say whenever we have solitary confinement, the conditions become extremely restrictive and are hard to monitor. And so we just have to really carefully limit any use of those conditions. So the Mandela Act is saying, you know, in general, no more than 15 days in those conditions. So I think in those 15 days, things might still be highly restrictive. But the idea is to never leave anyone in that place for more than a couple weeks at a time at most. And I do think one thing that's interesting and changing in California California has has been at the forefront of trying to reduce those, uh, as as you say, extortionary communications rates for people who are incarcerated. And uh, the rates are a little better for phone calls in California than a lot of other states. They're they're capped and, and at a pretty low rate. But California has also been really interesting trying to get technology into the prisons. And so there are many more people now with tablets they can be expensive. <laughs> there can be a lot of costs associated with those, but it does open up opportunities for communication, you know, to have music. There was an amazing New Yorker story about a guy who was able to hear new Taylor Swift songs now that he has access to something like a tablet in prison. But there is a growing technology resources, and I think there is some hope that with something like a tablet, maybe people in solitary confinement could continue to have access to that. But, you know, again, I think the real central motivation is just trying to make sure that people are there for really short periods of time, if at all. Because I guess previously that there was the requirement they'd have at least 17 hours a whole week out. But even Mm -hmm. that in the old in the 
previous years and mm. that even 17 hours a week was not being met. So, but you're saying this is this will be opening up, not even as you said, uh, no more than 15 days yeah, that, in a row. Right. So when people raise the issue of this is to protect, well, there's two people that are being protected. There could be well three. There's the person that's being detained. There's the other detainees that might be at risk from mm -hmm. someone with severe complications, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. some threatening features. And then there's the carceral personnel, mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. I'm not sure what's the term I'm supposed to use, the, the, the guards. Correctional officers. So correctional are, officers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I, and I know terms are, I, I don't want to get twisted in that, but I'm, but I, I'm all about learning what might be so opening up my ever, scope here ever changing ever changing um, but, but but important yeah I, I value respecting you know as as i would respect what what an incarcerated person would choose to be called i you know i think correctional officers that's the formal term in california so so what is your response when people say well we're just trying to keep everybody safe so just th throw out that key and keep just keep them in one place that nobody can they can't interact well i would say two things to that one is that there's not much evidence that solitary confinement keeps people safe, but there's an immense and growing body of evidence that it makes them unsafe. So lots of studies have looked at does using solitary confinement reduce violence in prison systems? And it, the evidence is just incredibly weak. Like what people usually find is that maybe there's a slight increase in violence and maybe there's a slight decrease in violence. And there's no dramatic, you would think, spending millions of dollars keeping thousands of people in long-term solitary confinement and all the transitions we've seen away from it, that we would see dramatic changes around violence in a prison system. And we don't in either direction. So that's one of the big arguments is, oh, this keeps us, makes us safer, it reduces violence. And there's just no evidence of that. On the other hand, there's immense evidence that spending time in solitary confinement is incredibly dangerous for individuals, that it increases risks of suicide, of all kinds of uh, psychological symptoms like that are that are associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's an entire syndrome called shoe syndrome for security housing unit or solitary isolation because the reactions to these conditions are so severe. I've done work suggesting that there are physical symptoms also that people have skin problems from lack of access to natural light, that they have heart problems. And there's been um, a growing body of work in the public health literature about this, that um, people can have heart problems after spending time in solitary. So just growing bodies suggesting it's dangerous and not protective. So that's kind of one response to the do we need it. But the other thing I would say is that it's true that our prisons are dramatically overcrowded and that correctional officers are not being given tools to deal with incredibly challenging populations and that it is scary how to handle them. And we do need to think about resources. Some of those resources are reducing the population. Some of those resources are making sure that people who are seriously mentally ill are in treatment facilities and not punishment facilities. But those are the kinds of things that I think can leave staff working in these prisons resistant to reform because they say, okay, I hear you. I don't want to abuse people either, but what do you want me to do when I have 250% capacity and I don't even have a bachelor's degree, say, or I've been asked to deal with some seriously mentally ill person that the forensic hospital and the people with medical degrees there can't handle. So I think there is a need to acknowledge that we've given people working in prisons a really hard job and we need to think about how to create alternatives 
to the only tool they feel like they have, which is often solitary. I just need to remind listeners, if you've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Professor Karamet Ryder with appointments at UCI's Criminology, Law, and Society, as well as UCI's Law School. She's the founding director of Lifted, a prison education program in the UC system. We're talking about, mainly it'll be today about solitary confinement, but there's so many other, there's intersections with where education and other programs can really make an impact shifting away from punitive to rehabilitatory measures. So I I want to just sort of pry open, but is maybe the intent if solitary confinement might drive a detainee to suicide, is it, is it some sort of unspoken policy? This is an attrition that the, the prison system is. Uh, some people would find was their their goal um i think you know i'm sensitive to imposing that degree of uh or other conscious uh, or finishing them off with a cardiovascular but i but i do think there is a way in which we treat certain categories of people as disposable and our prison system exemplifies that and and solitary confinement I often say is the deep end or the place where we can see magnified the abuses in in the whole system and I do think there is a tendency to assume that some people are disposable and and that is very disturbing and solitary confinement exemplifies that tendency I think there's not enough attention to even think about exactly what happens to them, right? It's just well, that's the nature yeah, of so confinement. Like, you know, is there no, off no of everybody's like, radar? Oh, they'll they'll go ahead and commit suicide. It's it's more that that there's uh, just a putting people in a place where we don't have to think about them or acknowledge them anymore, and just well, that's letting, what I'm it, wondering letting if, it go. Yeah, and, and that's a disturbing side of solitary. Um, I, I, you know, the flip side of that, as I was saying, is that there are correctional officers who have to manage that population. And that is also very hard, right? To be in right. a position where your job is to go in every day and manage the people who everyone else is trying to forget about. And that's also disturbing. And I think, again, part of what the Mandela Act is doing that's so powerful is saying, let me show you these faces and these people and force you to think about them and stop forgetting them, stop imagining them as disposable. And it's something I've seen in my work again and again that when you can tell specific stories about individuals, it becomes much harder to forget about them or to think about them as disposable or not someone that we need to, to take care of. So, so have um, let's let's just go back to the legislative mm-hmm. part then. Mm-hmm. So we have a uh, we, we're represented by State Senator David mm-hmm. Min mm-hmm. and Cotty Petrie Norris. Mm-hmm. So I I tried to it's very hard sometimes to get the actual voting records so mm-hmm. i don't know i can't bring mm. to studio a my research that i know exactly what their positions were but do, have they been conferring with you no although i have to give Cadi petri norris a shout out as a wonderful supporter of our prison education work that's happening in the university of california system so i do think there uh there is um an investment in rehabilitation and a growing sense i think that uh, again, as we were talking about before, some of these policies are astronomically expensive, particularly solitary confinement. And education, it turns out, is way cheaper. So I think there has been a growing sense there. You know, maybe some people won't step up and say, 
I want to abolish solitary confinement, particularly if they're being supported by correctional officers who are scared about the alternatives. Um, But they might step up and say, there are things that we can do that seem to work. And rehabilitation, investing in education is one of those. And and so I think that's, you know, they're <laughs> politics. And it's it's really exciting to see at least some of that investment in thinking about how we how we can get education to prisons, how we can ensure that the 95% of people who are coming out have access to higher education, because we know that that reduces recidivism, that that uh, creates employment opportunities, and that that gives people hope. And that's public safety. Yes. That keeps the community safer. Yeah. And so I, now I'm just going to just wonder out loud that can't you get little sharper elbows and get into that legislative arena? <laughs> or maybe your PhD candidates can yeah. sort of make themselves extremely valuable, extremely yeah. accessible and visible. I mean, I'm just, I'm right now, because I will bring up every uh, fifth show, I will say Sherwood Rowland figured out the ozone depletion Mm -hmm. formula, Mm -hmm. and then he left the bench, Mm -hmm. and then he was all over the world championing how the the, the ozone uh, needed to be, uh, how how it could be managed. And so I'm just, I'm just always trying to push academics out into the real world with their, I mean, it's. Academic is real, but I mean, in the applied part of their work. Yeah, no, I, I agree that the applications are, are really important. And that's, I mean, to me, that's one of the reasons why I'm involved in prison education. Because, you know, on the one hand, with the legislature, I I often most appreciate the roles where I can help empower people who were affected by these systems to talk to the legislature, because I think their voices are the most powerful. And so my favorite role is just to try to advise formerly incarcerated folks or people who are working in the prison system to give them empirical data or resources or, or ways to approach these questions because, again, I think their voices, the people who are most affected, are the most powerful. But I also think about how we use our roles, you know, what what are our strengths as academics and what can we do that's practical. And, and to me, you know, I, I'm an educator and one of the things I could do is make sure that more people have access to that education. And so that's part of my investment in higher education for people in prison is that I think that that plays, you know, if you're talking about elbows and getting in there, mm-hmm. that plays to, yeah. to, to my strengths and, and my knowledge and working in that system to try to get people more resources. And I think providing education also is a, is a pathway out, right? If we think about the system being um, uh, overblown or inflated, having too many people in it, and we think about not enough people crossing those walls to see what's going on in our prisons. I think education is a really important way to address that. It's a, it's a, um, it provides a very clear pathway or bridge out of the facility for people. And it also is a, you know, we're getting dozens of faculty now every quarter going into prisons who maybe hadn't thought about them before. And so it's creating more people who are thinking, who are going inside these institutions and seeing what's there and thinking about them. And so as much as getting my elbows in the legislature, I think a lot of there's about a lot of elbows you can how bring. Do we make yeah, how do we make sure that everyone sees what's happening behind our prison walls and what are the tools we have to do that? How impressive, though. You could have like a whole bank <laughs> of people that have been teaching yep. inside yep. those detention centers. Yep. And there they are. And yep. they're all they're all just as yeah. I, I, I have a strong visual. <laughs> so I'm just wondering when you are working with detainees then. So you probably have a little kind of a little patient chart, a little a little clipboard. You you know their background, right? So can you 
So you can tell, I mean, there's ways you can tell, and you know a little bit about them, and you can, it also shows that maybe they've been in solitary. That is true. I, you know, um, in general, it's a cultural norm to not ask people about their prior criminal history. That, and, yeah. and the Somehow UCs don't that. ask. So I yeah. feel very strongly that, um, you know, you're, you've been sentenced, you're serving your time, and that's not, not a thing I need to ask. And, and as an institution, it's a thing that the University of California system has decided not to ask about. But I certainly get to know people and know that they've spent long periods of time in prison and have a sense. You know, if I meet someone who's been in prison for 20 years and has uh, a lot of tattoos and maybe talks a bit about where they grew up, I have a sense that that might be someone who just statistically was likely to have spent time in solitary confinement I because they would have been um, seen as a gang member, whether or not they identified that way. And if they had a long sentence and, you know, solitary, you know, there were at, at a point in California that 10 percent of the population was in solitary. So, I, yes, I think certainly one gets a sense of those stories. And as you get to know people, you know, they're writing essays and classes, they're writing application essays, they're um, often we encourage them, our, our students to write for a newsletter or a blog for our website so people can get to know them. So we do gradually get to know a bit more about their stories and those histories. And a number of them have been in solitary. Okay, that's, uh, and there are there are actually some questions I'm going to be withholding, listeners. I know you're curious, and I, but I'm I think it would be a distortion to to bring that up, and I'll I'll uh, maybe I can ask off mic about that um, how some of this some of the dynamics with because when Michael was on, and we we talked about there's two ways if if you can't power through so I don't know if that's even the right verb, but if you can't survive one way. There's different ways to get out of solitary. Yeah. The choices yes. are pretty grim. Yes. And yes. there there are there's a snitch yes. route out. Yeah. There is a person just succumbs to the conditions or yeah. somehow like Michael. Michael got out. Michael's I, I think he's in Riverside yes. now. Yes. He must yes. have yep. finished. So um just a little update in a second. But so I it's I'm just wondering if some people let's just put my curiosity in a very general observation with you is that those there may be with the status quo what some carceral officers they may be needing some of those options for mm. for the system to work mm. so i i'm just that's an observation i'm making and i i don't want to put you on a, a on a sort in a, a gotcha question about do people are they counting on certain outcomes from the limited choices in solitary confinement no but i I think i think there are really limited choices in the prison system as a whole right one way to look at solitary confinement is that it's just it it exemplifies the failures of the system and and the problems with incarceration more generally Um, i think because of reforms in california that classic parole snitch or die that people used to yeah. say to describe how you'd get out of solitary is is a bit more flexible, right? A lot of guys um, got out after the hunger strikes and the litigation uh, because because of litigation, right? So we could add parole snitch die or hunger strike and litigation if we wanted. And, and I think there were some successes to that. So, you know, whether people, um, you know, it's hard to know whether, whether people um, got out through litigation, whether they just survived and their term It's not a just, though, because I just can't imagine. I mean, people, maybe COVID let people know what what may be a a kind of a, just an inkling what solitary is. There was a solitary piece to COVID staying in place. I I think about... You bring that up? 
I think about that a lot, particularly watching we've now had two students in our bachelor's program in prison get released and watching them transition after decades to campus. I think about it the same way I see people relearning to socialize after COVID, right, that I think we're not even fully aware of how much we lost on Zoom and in our homes. And I still find myself kind of remembering how to interact and how to talk to people, especially if there's more than one person in the room at a time. And I really see that for people coming out of prison, that that is a that question of how to interact, have a conversation with someone who hasn't been in prison, how to interact with a lot of people at a time can be really overwhelming and is a really dramatic transition. So I, that is one parallel I think we, we can empathize around. So that could be a talking point in the legislative arena that mm-hmm. we can all mm-hmm. more effectively sympathize mm-hmm. with solitary conditions and so uh, that's I, I'm n- I never talk about silver linings but it's a feature that could be brought empathy. to discussing that empathy is really important and I think we lack it when we think about these populations often so the Margot Mendelson a legal director mm-hmm. of the prison law office so you work with her and she's she's been providing a whole lot of of information to art you're, you're working with her or a yeah, absolutely. I, I, so I worked at the prison law office my first year out of college. So I have a longstanding admiration and, and relationship with them. And I've known Margot since college. Uh, so yes, they, they do amazing work. And we often just kind of connect and talk through, you know, are there, what's she doing? Are there things I should know about that are useful? Things that my students should be studying? And then, you know, connecting with me, like what kind of research are, do you, are you doing? Are there things that are useful for us to cite? So we definitely have a back and forth. And I guess just to bring her own wisdom to what you're giving us, Karamitz, she's, and I'm quoting her, people do get better, places are more peaceful, mm-hmm. reentry is more successful mm-hmm. when we bring programming and relationships and social contacts back yes. to these spaces. Yes. So, and you've talked about the palpable reform. Things mm-hmm. are opening up. I don't know, though, with an election cycle next year, how much further this could be, and it it's bringing... Governor Newsom, who has, I have no idea what kind of national, I I have a sense it's not a presidential campaign, but a national leader Mm. mantle. Mm. There there are many ways to do that, but that he's going to be very conservative Mm. with a a little C, maybe a big C Mm. too, about what he would allow out there. I don't know. Mm. And if, if you have evidence that the governor's office is working on the in the legislative arena to tweak this or just mm. to keep it from getting any further than it got in late September. September 14th, I think, is when it was set aside. It's a good question, but I do think... I sometimes get accused of having rose-colored glasses, but it's hard to do this work if you aren't hopeful that, that something can change. And I do think that the movement is continuing to gain momentum, right? I saw more momentum and attention this year than last year with the legislation. And I think that to the extent there's a political leader who's resistant, increasing pressure and a kind of just more and more narratives about what works and what doesn't work, I think, can build up over time. And we've seen um, New York did pass Mandela Act legislation. We've seen successes across the country. And I think some of this and, you know, I, I 
California isn't perfect and they're still using solitary confinement in the state prisons. So I, I don't want to maybe we can talk a little more about I, I don't want to be say that the reforms were perfect because I think there's a tendency to go back and hide what we're doing. Right. So Pelican Bay looks better, but there are other facilities uh, where people are still in solitary confinement, often under new names. And the litigation that led to the reform in Pelican Bay just got shut down by a circuit court, by a conservative circuit court in California after 10 years. So it isn't all wins. Uh, And I think, you know, the district court in California had held that the system was opening new solitary units under new names and hiding them and monitoring needed to be ongoing. And the circuit court said, forget it. This is beyond the scope of the litigation. So I think there is a tendency to feel like, oh, we won and then turn the other way and let it go. But but part of what I think is so important about the Mandela Act is that I think there's more work to be done to understand, right? The Mandela Act is saying, let's keep moving forward in state prisons in the direction we're moving, but let's also acknowledge that it's juvenile detention facilities that use solitary. It's immigration detention That's facilities. That's the one I want to make it's, sure we got to. It's jails. And, and these are these are people that are trying to seek asylum, but they're yes. being put in a yes. carceral system. And and jails. And 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 we we don't we don't even know, right? We only have anecdotes. We don't have good data about these facilities and how frequent it is. But based on everything we know about state prisons, based on institutions that have been studied, we suspect it's being overused. And it's and we're just at the early stages of trying to control and regulate and limit that. And without the knowledge, right, one of the key steps in California was the data that an NPR journalist got that there were 500 people who'd been in solitary for more than 10 years. That was a critical fact that no one had. And that fact allowed us to certify a class of people, to move litigation forward, to understand the precise harms. And we're still working on gathering those facts about jails, about immigration detention. And so I appreciate that the idea of regulating all of that at once is overwhelming. It's really hard to regulate jails. They're at the local county level. We're lumping that in with state prisons. We're lumping that in with immigration detention, which is federal. So these are really complicated questions. And, and what I about think- the privately run ones? Well, California has fewer private prisons in part because the correctional officers union is so strong. So federal immigration detention is almost always run by private facilities. And that's where there could be a a separate. And this Mandela Act would not be. Well, that's because they're federal, too. Well, it's an interesting question about the Mandela Act, right? What can the legislature regulate? Their facilities in our state, their people who are residents of our state. So so I think it's, you know, again, these are new these are efforts to build new regulatory oversight mechanisms. And of course, they're not going to be simple. But I think they're really important conversations. So there was a quote of yours in Cal Matters about in the spring, I think, where you said this this has been since the 19th century, solitary yeah. confinement's been around. So there's a lot of inertia yes. that you're dealing with when you're trying to get data. Yes make your talking points yes. after get the data interpret the data and yes. then present the data yes so that's it's just a, a lot of work to to reverse all of that that institutional yes kind of yes. inertia there yes. so i'm repeating myself <laughs> um so again my for those of you who may have just joined us my guest is professor Kermit Ryder. She's with the UCI Criminology Law and Society, as well as UCI's law school. She's the founding director of Lifted, a prison education program in the UC system. So I guess let's give you a chance to talk about what 
is happening with that the, it was a sociology program but is it yes. still that's the major yes. for and it's any UC school now are there more campuses that are being added since UCI and UCLA began this program we are working on expansion so uh, the bachelor's program in sociology launched at Richard J. Donovan Prison, a prison in San Diego, uh, last year. So our first cohort of students, we had 26 students who started. Uh, two have now been released, so we have 24 incarcerated and two on campus, will earn their bachelor's degree in sociology this June. So June of 2024, we're planning their graduation. So that will when, be where's our it first cohort. Be? Uh, at the prison. Okay. So uh, we will I'd have like a UC graduation. No, the prison, you want to be on the invite I want to be on, I don't, I want to be on the, uh, it's not that it's an, not a VIP thing, but just to sort of, I would like to sort of see what, how, how that all yeah. goes. We will keep you updated. We would, we're Can, very Could anybody, or is that, that because it. Or maybe you want legislators come. We are maybe put yes, them in the in yes, a ring. We are. That's we the are, sharp elbow. Yes, yes. We we definitely plan to invite legislators. There's talk of inviting Gavin Newsom. I don't know if he'll come, but no. Um, we. But oh we no, no. You are, no, want you to keep invite the legislators, especially ones who supported us. Yes. No. Um. You know there are strict rules about people getting cleared to come into the prison. Right. That's and true. It's a. It's it's one yard and 24 students. So there's just a space issue. But we're hoping to be able to invite at least 30 campus in the chance on the chancellor's calendar um folks on campus like deans who've supported this who haven't been and then hopefully some elected officials um people philanthropists who've been supporting the program legislators who've supported it so so we're very hopeful that we can uh, there is nothing like seeing these students in person going into the prison and seeing this environment where they don't have they do for the first time have laptops that they can use with extremely limited internet access so they can well, right. access yeah we, so. we, that's obvious why it has to be limited exactly so you they're entrepreneurs <laughs> in prison well um but you but you see this place and you see these students who've overcome all these barriers to get a college degree and you the diversity of students they are all different ages all different backgrounds and their deep gratitude to have this opportunity after often decades of following falling through the education system, this opportunity to get a bachelor's degree. Um, everyone I know who's been inside says, okay, I now want to teach in the program because these students are so amazing and this work feels so meaningful, especially as we see them coming out of prison and, and succeeding. So we just started. We um, we now have two cohorts. So we have a second cohort that started this fall. They apply as junior just level now. transfer students. Okay. Exactly. So, so they're... Um, and where are they? They're still at the Donovan? At Donovan, yes. Okay. So we have a second cohort of 21 students at Donovan. And we're working on admitting our third cohort. But we are also very much in the middle of building replication programs. So Lyft had just received a big federal grant that will allow us to plan replication onto a second yard or basically a second building at the prison in San Diego. And the legislature that funded, when they funded five years of UC bachelor's programs in prison, some of that funding was earmarked to support replication projects. So we have a call out right now and a couple UCs who hopefully we'll be able to announce soon who are planning replication projects. So we hope that in the next few years, there will be hopefully we'll be serving more like 100 students a year at Donovan at UCI. And then there will be other UCs, at least two more uh, across the state, serving students at other facilities um, in the range of 50 to 100 students a year. Uh, so really, really exciting time in this space. 
Well, I don't think we've, when you talked about this last uh, two times ago when you were on here, so the vetting, we're, 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 we're rapidly running out of time, but the, the vetting, because there's probably going to be a huge demand and su- mm. for this and mm-hmm. not enough seats. So how are you, that's kind of getting trickier with more and more interest. It is. And one thing I often say about this program is, you know, if you read education news, transfer pathways across the country and particularly in California are fraught. So it's it's very complicated for students who go to community college to figure out how to transfer into four year degree programs. And one thing I often say about our work is that we're going to solve that in California because the community colleges, the Cal States and the UCs are all in monthly calls together, figuring out how to support these incarcerated students and maximize their opportunities. So I feel really excited about it as a model of how different levels of higher education can work together to help students get from one level to the next to the next. And we're modeling it in prison. So, yeah, it's not always easy, but we also have a group of really committed educators working on it. And the Cal States are also growing their bachelor's program. So we're all thinking very carefully about how to work closely with the community colleges, how to have a range of degree offerings so students have some choice. So we're hoping... Besides sociology. Exactly. Besides sociology, that was our inaugural one. But we're hoping we'll have a second degree at Donovan, that the other UCs who come into this... This space. We don't know. That's oh, part that's, of the grant is to plan with the students, with wow. the campus, to look at what, what a second degree program, what people would like, like to STEM? invest in. Do you think it'd be STEM? Maybe. We've talked about public health uh, as, oh, that's an, part of as STEM. an interesting... Yeah. So, I mean... It is hard with transfer students to make sure they have the prerequisites in math and science. So it's a bigger challenge with STEM because classes have to be taken in a very specific order. And a lot of times these students are moving around and it's easier. Like in sociology, you can imagine you can take four different sociology classes in any order and it gives you a little more flexibility. Yeah, I understand that. So then, of course, there will be rich research projects to follow the graduates <laughs> so. and find out that they a they're now they're productive they have an incredible capacity to provide peer intervention mm-hmm. in any community yes. that's having yeah safety issues and one thing we're talking about with some of our students in the first cohort, just anecdotally, we're hearing from our students that it's not just them who are feeling like this education is incredibly meaningful and giving them hope and inspiring them to think about graduate school, but their families are going back to I school. I never forget them. It's so communities. Their kids are saying my dad's getting a degree from UC Irvine, I can do it. Their siblings are saying that. It's their flipping spouses, the culture of the family. their parents. Yeah, so that's something that our students and I am really interested in documenting. And we're talking together about, could we design a study to show how this is not, you know, we often think about it in terms of the individuals, but this is a much broader impact on communities than I even had ever imagined. And that's always been this. your research area. Yeah, yeah. The impact on individual and communities. Exactly. And so you were not surprised at that, but it's it's sort of eye-popping that you can start it, to see it now. It is. I didn't expect to hear it so quickly and so consistently from our students. So, so Carmel, in the time we have remaining, let's just say about less than two minutes. <laughs> so let's give some assignments. Let's give some takeaways, calls to action. Can't quite do those on KUCI, but some something to send listeners off and doing. 
One thing I often say is that paying attention in this space is incredibly important. The worst abuses I've seen in prison happened when no one was paying attention. So really taking the time to read the news, take the time to read the stories and to weigh in. Call your legislatures when you hear about something like the Mandela Act. Um, you know, it, just as one example, the, the bachelor's program is called Lifted. Our website is lifted.uci.edu. We have some of our student stories up there. That's just one of so many places you could go to understand on a more human level what people are experiencing in prison and to take the time to share those stories because I really think thinking about them as individual human beings with futures is is a critical step forward. And I think it's related to this. You mentioned up earlier about a really a very tatted up body mm -hmm. would indicate some kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And I, in the retail area, like mm -hmm. I'll say Home Depot, mm -hmm. and I've, and there's a person that there, there's just a bearing about them, mm -hmm. including a lot of tattoos. Mm -hmm. And I just, just decided I could have a, an immediate sort of xenophobic kind mm -hmm. of a reaction to mm -hmm. them. But if, if we could sort of think about slow down mm -hmm. and just sort of be uh, just acknowledge mm -hmm. or respectfully or just just don't freeze up. But just just sort of, you know, here's a person who's trying to get uh, get a job going, trying to train and do all these things. So um, I, I just like we could start in so many pedestrian little settings. And also imagine that person becoming a University of California student and the kind of reactions they would face and how important this work is to create spaces where they feel safe, they have a voice, and they can explain and talk to us about their experiences. And they can thrive and everybody's safe, yes. everybody's better off. Well, Karamet, you have been such a font mm. of perspective and constructive pathways. So thank you very much for all the time that you've given us today on Ask a Leader. Thank you for having me. My guest was Karamet Ryder. You heard it all today. She's got appointments at UCI Criminology, Law and Society, and UCI's Law School, and she gave a lot from her involvement uh, she talked about today with the prison education program in the system it's called lifted and it's going to be expanding and there's going to be follow-up so this is going to be so rich this is my wrap next week we'll hear from playwright octavio solis about his new production at south coast repertory entitled quixote nuevo starring herbert siguenza from the culture clash talk with you next week thank you everyone for listening